You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, Victoria. Uh, Yay! I realized, yeah, happy to have you here. I realized while prepping for today's show that um, our audience has been growing, like, extremely fast lately. So... Since you were last on, we probably have somewhere between 150 and 200 new listeners who, <laughs> unless they went back a few weeks, don't even know who you are. Like they've heard your name in the intro and they've probably been sitting around going, who's this Victoria woman that they mentioned in the <laughs> intro that we, we never hear about? Can you just like catch everyone up and tell us where you've been? Hey everyone, I am one of the nominal co-hosts of this show, but I am also <laughs> in nursing school. So I have stepped back a little bit. Um, I'm now doing two out of every four episodes, pretty much. And uh, that's why you've been hearing some guests on the show lately, but I am yeah. officially part of this show. And here I am tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Here you are. We are very, very excited to have you here. Uh, I'm excited cool to be that, here. Uh, you will always be, uh, of course, a professional naturalist, uh, but now you're also going to be a multi-skilled uh, person. Yes. Not that you weren't already, but you're adding to your multitude of skills and hopefully bringing us some weird, uh, some, some more weird stuff that you're learning about along the way, I know. Absolutely. Exactly. Awesome. Well, uh, keep at it and welcome back. Uh, in honor of you being uh, here with us this week, I have a strange medical topic related to nature. Ooh, uh, and this goody. is actually uh, based on a study that came out of Japan recently that really blew my mind. So let's get right down to it. All right. This study was about food allergies. Ooh. Now, obviously, uh, food allergies are a pretty serious concern. I'm not talking about like lactose intolerance, like you get a little upset stomach from food. I'm talking about like the kind of allergies where you go into anaphylactic shock from eating or even some cases touching a food source mm -hmm. uh, and you could be at risk of yeah. dying. So. It's bad. Uh, this, this has always kind of amazed me that there are differences in humans in this regard. Like I could eat a whole handful of peanuts and like a big, big old spoon of peanut butter and probably even like cover myself in peanut butter. I'm not that I would want to, but <laughs> I, I, I could, and it probably have It'd no other effect choice. on me than to like, right. It would, it would <laughs> quench my hunger and probably moisturize my skin. But on the other hand, for some people eating just like a single piece of one peanut could literally kill them. And that is so strange to me that that's like a thing that exists in humans. Now that is bizarre enough. Uh, like that could have been this week's topic, but what I have is I think even stranger. Oh, Ooh. A fabulous. Paper, a yeah. A paper was released right at the end of last month. Uh, let's see. It was uh, March 30th, 2023. And this paper outlined an observational study in Japan that involved 66,000 children. So that's a pretty big study. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the results reported to show that children exposed to indoor cats and dogs 
while they were still in their mothers gestating, and then also again during early infancy, were less likely to have specific food allergies. Now, that is weird in and of itself, but it gets weirder. There were correlations between the kind of animal they were exposed to and the type of food allergy they didn't get. What? Here's a little breakdown. Yeah. Kids that were exposed to dogs had fewer egg, milk, and nut allergies. Children exposed to cats were significantly less likely to uh, develop allergies to eggs, wheat, and soybeans. And finally, in a plot twist, children exposed to hamsters were actually more likely to develop nut allergies. Don't get a hamster. That's my takeaway. (laughs) Ah, So so Sorry, kids. I had Uh, hamsters. (laughs) And do you have a nut allergy? I do not. But I also grew up with dogs. Okay, Okay, well, hmm. Conflicting information there, I guess, with if you have a dog and a hamster. Uh, So this is all pretty fascinating. Uh, This followed other previous studies that have shown a correlation between being exposed to pets or even farm animals and Mm -hmm. a reduced incidence of allergies. There's a lot of speculation as to why this may be having uh, happening, and it might have to do with how our immune system works. I've certainly heard about how being exposed to animals early on can essentially train your immune system that allergens from pets are normal and not something they need to attack. But it's fascinating to think Mm -hmm. about why a fetus developing inside a mother in a house that has a cat makes the baby less likely to be allergic to soybeans. Like, why? (laughs) What's the (laughs) connection there? Yeah, that's weird. And the truth is, uh, we simply don't know. To be clear, though, we don't even know if there is a connection. Yeah. Can either of you identify the possible issue with this study and frankly all studies like it? Well, it's it'll it's only correlational. It's not causational. Yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. Yeah, this is was an observational study, uh, mm. which basically means they just were like asking people questions like at their doctors checkups and whatnot. Uh, It wasn't like where they went out to carefully select a group of people and do a controlled study. It was just observing, you know, what was already happening and looking for correlations. And um, the authors themselves went out of their way right at the front to point point this out themselves, that observational studies cannot prove causation, just like you said, Victoria. Um, All they can do is point out correlations, and correlation in science, while often right, can also be completely happenstance. It could be that people who have dogs in their homes also have dog food in their homes. Mm -hmm. And maybe being exposed to dog food makes you less allergic. Uh, It could be that uh, genetically parents of people who will grow up to be free of soybean allergies are also predisposed to enjoy the company of cats. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, People with pets uh, also do more vacuuming. And being exposed to the sound of a vacuum cleaner in vitro Maybe that reduces your chance of allergies. Like, it, it, that's a pretty silly example. But yeah, let's assume the yeah. pet connection is real. People with pets do vacuum more. So if we had instead asked pregnant mothers about their vacuuming habits, we perhaps could come up with the same correlation. And it would look like the like vacuum cleaning actually, like is what makes people not have allergies, right? Right. Um, based on the data, that would, that, would, that would seem to be correct. So the truth is, like, we simply 
cannot tell the reason for a correlation or even know if it's meaningful, even if we're sure that it's there. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, there could be what's called the confounding variable. Some some other yes. variable that they're not asking about that explains both of the things that we're yep. looking at. Yeah, and now well, is there problem? Do I think there's probably something to the animal thing? Probably, you know, that seems kind of reasonable, but we don't know. I mean, yeah. ex- exposure can either like show or uh, get you used to like having a certain amount of allergies and different allergies. And I know that a lot of dog right, right. food and treats and things, a lot of them are peanut butter flavored. Maybe. Yeah. Prob- oh, I don't sure. know if that has anything to do with uh-huh. it, but. Interesting. Like, like having peanut huh. butter treats for dogs yeah. in the house or something. At least yeah. in the U.S. We don't know about now, Japan. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Now, the on this whole correlation and causation thing, there's actually an amazing website that I'm going to put in the show notes. Um, and it's basically called Spurious Correlations. And you can see <laughs> amazing correlations and data sets that clearly are unrelated. Uh, so I was, I was pouring through here, and here's a few highlights I saw. Mm-hmm. There was a direct and compelling 94% correlation between the number of people who drowned in a pool each year and the number of films Nicolas Cage appears in in, in that year. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure those are not actually related. Uh, uh, pretty positive, There's yeah. also a very compelling 99% correlation between the per capita margarine consumption and the divorce rate in the state of Maine. Huh. People eat more margarine, more people get divorced. 99% correlation over many, wow. many years. I'll do, I'll do just one more because it's, it's a fun and it's a nature one. Uh, there's an 80% correlation between the number of letters in the winning word of the Scripps National Spelling Bee and the number of people killed by venomous spiders each year. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's so silly. So the guy who did this website literally wrote a book called Spurious Correlations. Uh, so you can buy a whole book of these if you find them entertaining. Uh, or perhaps you can sort through. Uh, there are 30,000 graphs on their website. That's um, so many graphs. So you can see that in science, correlation is not causation. Uh, we we got to have something more. Uh, what we can do is go, wow, this is really interesting uh, when it comes to this allergy thing. And then think of ways to test to see if there's an actual causative effect of pets and allergies and that's the kind of study we hopefully uh, will be seeing in the future if you want to check out the actual research paper uh, it's called preschoolers with pets have fewer allergies uh, and was published last month in plus one so that's what i got this week awesome thanks food for thought thank you (laughs) you're welcome let's take a little break and then rachel will be up next Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. All right. Welcome back, everyone. 
This week, I have a fun story to tell you all. Oh, I like a fun story. Yeah, they're always a good time, right? As naturals, we get a lot of um, kids asking us all kinds of questions. They make observations all the time. And there was this one eight-year-old who happened to make just a great observation to just the right person, his dad. This eight-year-old, who is no longer eight, Hugh Dean, noticed something as he was exploring out by his, in his backyard. He lifted up a log and okay. saw that there were a bunch of these seed-looking things right by hmm. where ants were coming in and out. Mm, and okay. his dad happened to be a professor of entomology at Penn State. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So he goes, he went to his dad and was like, hey, dad, what's happening? What are these? What's happening? What's going on? I'm curious. And Mm -hmm. Hugh, uh, Hugo, rather, um, thought they were seeds. It's like, why, why does the insect, why, why does the ant have a bunch of seeds by its home? And we've known uh, for a long time that ants tend to spread seeds. Like plants will create a coating or have like a little cap to entice, uh, to entice ants to dis- help disperse seeds. That's something science has known oh, for a while. Oh, okay. interesting. Um, okay. It's not all not all seeds, but some seeds will have um, probably a cap. not all ants and not all seeds. Yeah, exactly. They'll have like a little cap. It has a special name that I'll get into in a minute, and they'll eat that part. But they'll drag the seed with them toward because they have to remove it at their at the ant nest. So it allows the seed to then be dispersed because they disregard the rest of the seed because it's coated in something else that isn't appetizing. And so they and do they it. do they drag it underground too before they do that? Yes. So does it then grow Excellent. and destroy their nest? <laughs> it depends. To be fair, um, okay. But what eight-year-old Hugo was seeing wasn't a seed at all. No, he I bet not, huh? saw what he saw and what his dad got very very excited about, and then launched an entire like, research project about it. Like, truly a kid's dream, nice. right? To have, like, yeah, an entire right. research project based on a question that you had. Amazing. Right. Were oak galls. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. So, what ended up happening is Penn State... The, all of the Penn State scientists, what they were able to do. So his dad, Andrew Deans, um, they end up researching and investigating this. And uh, it they actually have an elaborate relationship between the ants that carry the galls off, the wasps that okay. make the galls, and make oak trees. Galls, right? Because these are oak apple galls. Wow. Okay. I was, that's what I was going to ask is which type of gall. Those are, when you were saying seed, the I big. was picturing like, this is little, big. like maybe this was going to end up being little eggs or little grass seeds. These are, cause they're like the size uh, of a grape, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like a shooter, like a, uh, a shooter marble. Cause you know, all yeah. of our listeners, you know, know what size a shooter marble is. Sorry. Grape might be a better, 
comparison. Yeah. Shooter marbles are even like that's like an old school thing for even one. That's like my parents' age. Like I did not. Yeah, I wasn't out on the playground you, shooting marbles like as a, a child. A, like a pinball ball. Like the grape is a good. There you go. A pinball ball. Thank you. Yeah. A slightly hipper reference. Surprised I didn't think of that. I'm not wearing my pinball T-shirt today. You literally have a pinball machine. I I do, I, <laughs> and I have plans for more. But that's not what this podcast is about. <laughs> so anyway, um, I feel like we got a little derailed there. We we always do. Let's face it. There, what it's called is. Uh, oh my gosh, we're gonna try here. It's probably Latin. Oh, go for um, it, Rachel. We're oh, here good. for you. <laughs> No one knows how it's pronounced. It's okay. It, it's true. Uh, Mermecury. Mermecury. Yeah, we're going to go mermecury. Um, okay. Is when certain plants will produce uh, an edible bit, an appendage of some sort uh, called oh, sure. okay. yeah, a yeah. leosome on their seed that attracts the ants. Which then will disperse the seeds okay. because they carry them back to their nests and then disregard the seed, but they eat the part, the elasome, eliosome. There okay, we go. Okay, so that's the Iliosome. term for uh, like when a you traditional have a seed. Is that the same thing? Yeah, With yeah. the seed, yes. This was like figured out and is actually like uh, a common uh, biology student. Um, Apparently, it's something that is really commonly taught to show as an example between plant and insect uh, and insect interaction. But Penn sure. State, led by Hugo's dad, uh, um, Andrew Deans, uh, they were able to reveal and they were able to find much more complicated version of it using wasp oak galls. What they found... Um, oh, I yeah <laughs> what they were able to find <laughs> is that uh the oak galls uh actually were able actually made their own version of eleosome on the gall okay. to attract ants and then they oh. directly observed wow. So I have their own, they were able to name it, and I'm not even, it's like Capellos, Capellos, um, okay. is what they decided to call it. Do, which do the wasps, do the wasps end up hatching and eat the ants? They don't, but that is great. Oh, great oh question. that's disappointing. <laughs> okay. Right. I was like, is that where this is going, Rachel? Right. Oh. That would be great. Also, so, <laughs> yeah. I Go, you finish. I realized we probably maybe should explain what a gall is for, for listeners who might not know. For those who didn't listen to our episode on galls, right? Yeah, so a gall is what and a, we had on uh, Michael Hawk, exactly. So, an oak gall, what it is, is there's uh, specific kinds of wasps that will go to an oak tree and they will lay an egg in the plant fiber in the like leaf fiber the stem of a leaf mm -hmm. or a branch or something like that most often like a leaf or a stem and it causes a reaction in the plant to swell up uh and just encase that little egg and it's a bunch of plant fibers and it's what the little baby egg and larva will actually eat uh as it's growing before it metamorphoses and 
flies off to be its own waspy self. Flies away. Yes. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Great. So they were able... But these are being harvested by ants. These are being harvested by ants. So they were actually able to directly um, see these galls in ant colonies in the wild. This is in New York and western or central uh, Pennsylvania. They were able to see okay. ants transporting galls to their nests, remove the edible cap, and the galls themselves end up remaining intact while this is happening, too. So they investigated... Um, to see if the capeos were similar to laosomes. They made bait uh, stations to see if they removed the same amount of seeds and galls. And it, it showed that there was no preference for uh, either seed or galls. Um, so because it showed that there was no preference between seeds or galls, it showed that the capeos functioned pretty much the same as the aleosomes. Okay. Wow. Cool. Yeah. And then they that were super cool. They did do some control too to figure out if um there were any if they would just take the galls themselves and uh if they didn't have that um capeos on it, it wouldn't take the gall. The ants wouldn't take the gall. Okay, so that was really the draw for them. Mm-hmm. Have they, so did they figure out if there's a, a reason, like an advantage, why the, why the wasp would want the gall taken? That's a great question. So they did kind of figure that out. So for the ants, it's a good source. It's similar to the oleosomes that capeos also have like really good fatty acids sure. for the ants. Yeah, I get but that part. For the wasp, it actually allows them to be protected like the larvae are more protected and less likely to be eaten by like birds and things because they're oh, on okay, the that ground. Makes sense. Okay. And they've been and they've been moved to a protected spot exactly. like under yeah. a log presumably. Exactly. And the galls wow. themselves okay. as huh. well as like seeds, they have um they're able they have like some sort of pheromone coating that makes uh, them smell or give off the scent of like a dead insect. So the in the gall itself <laughs> and the seed, the same mm. with the seed too. Lovely. Well, it leaves, that means the ants leave it alone. They don't go after and try to eat the gall. Mm. So oh, it's okay. a really complicated mm. relationship and it, it was just fascinating and it came up to me and I was just like, it's so cool. <laughs> That's that's this wild. Yeah, that, evolution is amazing. That relationship even came about. Yeah. Yeah, especially and, since wow. ants and, technically and like came the same thing in two different. Oh, evolved after. Uh, ants evolved after wasps did technically too. Like wasps are older okay. than ants. Evolutionary cool. speaking, just wild. They've they've had a little time to work this out though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by little, I mean like billions of years. <laughs> exactly. Oh. But it, well, it's, neither wow. ants nor wasps have been around for billions of years, but millions certainly. Billions. millions, yeah. And I did look this up because uh, I'm a total nerd. Uh, ants were from the Jurassic period, so that would be 140 to 168 million years ago. Yeah. So I apologize for making them older than they are. <laughs> so... Uh, I just wanted to tell the story of, uh, well, he's 10 now, but um, of 
10-year-old <laughs> Hugo Deans asking his dad a question and then over rocking the etymology field <laughs> with his question. Um, my awesome. source this week, uh, I got a lot of information from the brighter side news, um, but I also use uh, the discoverwildlife.com. So they had a lot of really good information. Uh, the, if you want to learn more, the findings from the paper uh, was, were published in the American Naturalist. So, yeah. Thank you. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it'll be Victoria. Yay! Hey, so a few weeks ago, Kirk, you sent me a link to an article yeah. uh, that was a follow-up on a topic I did uh, several weeks ago. And yes, I've already forgotten what that was, but yes, <laughs> yeah. I, did. I remember sending something. <laughs> yeah, I'm about to be surprised. I think this is my favorite kind of. Everything's uh, fresh. Moments. It's like a like a goldfish yeah. coming around again. Um, if you've been listening <laughs> to this show you. for at least a few weeks. You will remember an episode I did recently about the amazing South American vine, Bo Boquilla trifoliata, which can oh, mimic the, the leaves of more than a dozen other plants. Right. Yes, that was so yes. weird. So wild. Oh, yes. man. Extremely weird. So if you remember, uh, the leaves of one individual Boquilla plant can mimic multiple other plants along the length of a single individual vine. So like can start out it, looking it like itself. No and then, sense. Whatsoever. Yeah, it makes no sense. Then look like a one host plant, and then it can look like a different host plant, all in the same individual. And it was like, is, how does it know what shape of leaf to make? Ah. Exactly. It's extremely mysterious. Whatever on whatever part that it needs to. Yeah. Scientists have been pretty stumped as to how Bakila manages this trick. Uh, and the leading hypotheses in the, the paper that was originally published about this were either plant pheromones sort of, you know, acting across distance because the, the boquilla doesn't, boquilla doesn't even have to be touching the plant <laughs> to mimic it, which is weird. Oh, sure. Make it weirder. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Or possibly bacteria that might transfer plant genes Why from not? the host to the boquilla vine. So like, like a that. vector, as, as they call it in yeah, yeah. biology. There, there was, as I mentioned in that episode, there was also a paper su later suggesting it was due to plant vision. <laughs> but most scientists don't take that seriously. They're like, no. Yeah. No. I do have an update, though, thanks to what Kirk sent me. So the original paper's author did some analysis of the bacterial bacterial communities found in Boquila and one of its host plants, and they found some intriguing results. Oh. So, yeah, basically they looked at Boquila and at a tree that's called uh, <laughs> Raphithamnus spinosus. We're just going to call it the host from here on out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They took Sounds leaves good. from the host and they also took leaves from a uh, boquilla that was mimicking the host, as well as leaves from the same boquilla plant, 
but that we're not mimicking the host from a different part of the plant. Okay. And yeah, so they did a special kind of DNA analysis on all of these leaves. So the object was to determine which bacterial species were found in and on the various leaves and if they were more similar uh, in one way than another way. So there were a whole bunch of bacterial species that were shared among all three types of leaves. But once you count those out, yeah, yeah. Once you count those out, it turns out that there was significantly more overlap in bacterial species between the mimic leaves and the host leaves. Okay, so the bakila leaves that look like the host and the host leaves. Mm-hmm. So they shared 255 bacterial species. 255. Hmm. While the host and the non-mimicking bakila leaves shared only 79 species. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Oh, that's quite a difference. Huh. It is. And in fact, the mimicking and non-mimicking leaves of the same bokila vine only shared 33 species of bacteria. So the same plant, but with the different oh, shapes oh, of leaves. Oh, wow. Oh, wait. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's bizarre. So huh. the, the two leaves of the, pla- of, the, of the plant shared had less in common than but in, uh, between the species? That's correct. But that looked alike because it was mimicking the host. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that's weird. Yeah, it's really weird. So this is... It's intriguing, as the authors themselves state, this is only really a first step in investigating this hypothesis about bacterial gene transfer. It doesn't tell us if that is actually happening, but it does lend the idea some support. So it's really fascinating. Uh, So, you know, I had this update thanks to this paper Kirk sent me, but it wasn't really enough for a whole episode. So I thought I would actually just make this an update roundup and catch up on a a few previous topics that had some new uh, research. We always say we're going to, you know, come back and update us when we like finally figure this out. We'll so I am, this is exciting. All right. What more sciences mm-hmm. have we learned? I'm well, very I'm doing a deep cut. Uh, so we're going back all the way to episode 12, which was oh a, about uh, transmissible oh. cancers, particularly oh, the whole. Oh God, this was horrifying. Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Where they bite yeah, the, each other the, on the, the face and stuff? The one in uh, like, yes. uh, Tasmanian Devil? So the oh. horrifying face cancer that has decimated yeah. Tasmanian devil populations uh, in Tasmania yeah. and Australia. Yeah. yeah. Mm. There's no really big update since then, except that you know research continues to come out that the devils are seemingly continuing to evolve in response to the tumor and may, may be developing some resistance. But there was something really fascinating that I actually, it had, it had been um, released, like this, this data was out there, but I missed it the first time around when I was researching. So in that episode, I talked about other transmissible cancers as well. Um, They're quite rare in nature, but they do occur in dogs, hamsters, and clams. (laughs) But otherwise they're, they just don't happen that often. Right. It turns out researchers had discovered a second unrelated contagious cancer in Tasmanian devils in 2014. Oh, poor. As if that wasn't bad enough. No, no, there's another one. Oh, for another yeah. species? No, no, for yours. Oh, thanks, Doc. 
There's more than There's more one. than one. And it you can't tell Yay. by looking at it, but if you do DNA analysis, this cancer seemingly arose entirely separately from the original devil facial tumor disease. What? And it's even so like they they can oh. tell which the sex of the Why? animal that was the originator of each cancer, okay. and one was from a male animal and one was from a female animal. What is it about yeah. a Tasmanian devil that makes it a species where contagious cancer a thing. like becomes a thing? That's yeah. just bizarre. It seems like they are perhaps more prone to them than other animals. And the paper yeah. I read... Like it threw a couple IDs out there. Um, it said, I guess that Tasmanian devils mm-hmm. are sort of prone to cancers of all types in general. Okay. More okay. than some other animals. And that combined with the very vicious way that they bite each other a lot. Um, right. Just like all the trauma that's occurring mm-hmm. on their faces may just um, create conditions for this sort of transmissible cancer to occur more than in other species, but we really have no idea, frankly. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And I have one final update, and that is on the smell of Parkinson's disease. You remember this one? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, this was also a long time ago, episode 23. I talked to, there was a Scottish nurse named Joy Milne who has an amazing sense of smell, and her husband was eventually diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And quite a few years later, she realized when she attended a Parkinson's support group that the smell that she had smelled on her husband for decades, she was also smelling on the other people with Parkinson's disease in this group. And so she actually took it to researchers and um, working with them, she, in the laboratory, was able to tell T-shirts um, from Parkinson's patients, from yep. normal people. And in fact, she even identified someone who wasn't diagnosed with Parkinson's at the time, but got diagnosed like several yes. months later. Yeah. So she, she beat the, the test <clears throat> with her nose. Yes. Astounding. Yeah. Which is It's really wild. amazing. Well, the, the update is that the researchers that Joy works with were able to identify specific compounds in human sebum, that's basically like your skin grease, uh, mm-hmm. that were associated with Parkinson's disease. And they have now developed an experimental um, Parkinson's disease detection system that only uses skin swabs, which are then, wow. yeah, they're analyzed in a mass spectrometer. And sure, sure. this has not been commercialized yet, but this could really okay. revolutionize um, Parkinson's diagnosis oh, and management yeah. because there's currently no diagnostic test, actually. It's just sort of, yeah. I think it's symptoms and process of elimination, I believe. Well, and in sort of a futuristic Star Trekky kind of way, too, mm-hmm. like you wonder, are we going to get to a point where, you know, we can identify so many different things like this? Where you go into the doctor and it's like, oh, it's time for your once every 10 year, you know, swab or something. And they just like go, Bloop, oh, yeah, we, 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 it's sort of like like for newborns, they do like where they draw blood and they, they now do genetic screening and stuff for mm-hmm. a whole host of conditions. You wonder if there's something sort of like that coming down the road where you could just take a, a swab of, you know, like your skin. And they're like, well, 
Here's yeah. all these things we're testing for, you know? Well, I mean, there was the whole Theranos thing that was sort of claiming yeah, it was going to be able to do that, really and that didn't work out. out. <laughs> it turns out a little ahead of its time, yeah. perhaps, yeah. but I mean, that was sort of the, the goal. And yeah. you can see why people would be excited and get mm. caught yes. up in uh, what was essentially ended up being a scam. But, uh, you know, maybe we'll get there someday. Yeah, it would be. That'd be really cool if we did. Yeah, so that's those are my three updates. And who knows, maybe we'll do another update episode sometime in the future. Love it. Love it. Welcome back. Yeah. It was, uh, what, a, what a triumphant return. So those Thanks, are great, Victoria. Uh, great updates. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll be here next week as well. So Yay. tune in for that. Yay. All right. Well, great talking to you guys. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.